Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm here in Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. We're involved in a weekend prophecy conference. It's been great. Last night, a great meeting at the high school auditorium. Last time we were here, the church was too small. He's moved to the high school auditorium. It's a great opportunity for you to bring your friends and come tonight, 7 tonight until 9 o'clock, and then tomorrow, two sessions, one at 10 o'clock and the other at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Love to have you come and join us. I'm so glad you could join us here on Prophecy Today. We're going to be talking about the speeches at the United Nations this last week and also the Feast of Tabernacles. We have a rabbi to give you an orthodox insight into the Feast of Tabernacles right here on Prophecy Today. Now we get into the conversations with our broadcast partners. Around the world, we're going to be talking with men who will bring to these microphones information that you need to know about what is really going on in some of the headlines that you either hear or read about. This is very important as you develop a world view of what really is taking place in our world so you can kind of have an understanding of why these things are happening. Ken Timmerman in the Washington, D.C. area comes to the mics right now with a pulpourri of geopolitical activities that we need to look at. And Ken, I would imagine the number one headline has to be what happened at the General Assembly of the United Nations in New York City. We had President Obama speak, President of Iran, Hamadinejad, and the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. I want to get what your thinking is. Talk to me about First of all, President Obama's appearance there on the platform at the General Assembly at the United Nations. Well, uh, Jimmy, once again, uh, the the U.S. president uh, said that we still have time to negotiate a deal with Iran. There's nothing to get excited about, nothing to get worried about. Uh, People should not be talking loosely about uh, military action against Iran. And just my sense of that is that he's really living in some alternate universe. When you compare um, the speech of Bibi Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, who talks about red lines, who talks about Iran really being very, very close to a nuclear weapons capability, uh, there's really not much to negotiate. And and Obama came to office um, offering uh, negotiations without preconditions with the Islamic Republic of Iran, and he has gotten nothing in exchange. I warned about that at the time. You and I have talked about that uh, repeatedly on this program. Uh, I think it is folly to attempt to negotiate with this particular regime in Tehran. The only thing they really want to negotiate is the size of the coffin in which to bury us. Well, and in fact, can you talk with somebody a nation, for example, who has said repeatedly, and not only the president, but the supreme leader of the Supreme Council, Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, that they want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. How can anybody even have a conversation who wants to destroy a people and in another nation? Well, and they've also said that uh, they want to destroy America, and this is possible. They've said those two things as well. This president, Barack Obama, has not made it clear to the Iranian regime that there are red lines. They do not feel any credible threat whatsoever to their nuclear weapons program. Uh, Earlier this year, when they threatened to uh, block the Strait of Hormuz, the U.S. Navy and our allies said, okay, let's make it crystal clear to them that they cannot do so. We drew a red line uh, in the Persian Gulf and said, 
you will not cross this line. And the Iranians did not. They understand red lines. Even dictatorships understand red lines. I do not understand why the President of the United States will not draw that red line. One can only uh, wonder whether he does not somewhere in his mind wish to see a nuclear-armed Iran possibly as a deterrent uh, to Israel. Ken, let's go to school just for a moment. Some people may be eavesdropping in on this conversation and don't quite understand that phrase, red line. Uh, just make it real simple for those who may be listening to us. Well, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think, made it pretty clear. He said uh, there are two parts to any bomb. There's the fuse and there's the explosive material. Uh, the fuse is pretty easy to build in the case of a nuclear weapon. It also can be uh, built in a very small a facility the size of a classroom, so you're not going to be able to see it or detect it very easily. Whereas the explosive material, the nuclear weapons material, is built in industrial-sized facilities that are visible, that you can hear, uh, make a lot of noise, so uh, we can we know where they are uh, pretty much. Uh, that's what has to be stopped. And he said you have to draw the red line at Iran's ability to enrich uranium to weapons grade. So when he says a red line, he says, look, you, you can go up to this point, but no further. So he's saying to the Iranians, you can go up to this point with enrichment, but no further. They cannot enrich beyond the, the 3% of, um, that they would need for reactor fuel. And then if they do, what would be the case? Well, uh, see, that is what nobody has made clear at this point. Uh, the what if has not been made clear. And uh, the reason that hasn't been made clear is because uh, even the what is no longer clear. The red line is not clear. The United States of America under Barack Obama has not agreed to that. You know, what may be the case as we listened to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, in his speech there on the floor of uh, the world leaders who gather for that UN General Assembly, when he's referring to a red line, he said, okay, here's the red line. But there's been a lot of talk about a preemptive strike by the Israeli Defense Force. That may well be what if. Well, I, I think from Netanyahu's point of view, that is the what if. And if you wish, that was the, uh, the uh, implication in his speech. But he never came out and said it. He never came out and made an exp explicit threat in his speech. And I think uh, he was very careful not to do so because he knew that the the United States government under Barack Obama would have slammed him if he had done that. Meanwhile, the largest ever naval exercise is taking place even as we speak in the Persian Gulf. This is ominous as it relates to the potential for war with Iran. Well, it, again, this, uh, I think, is a salutary um, exercise. Uh, the display of U.S. and international military might inside the Persian Gulf uh, will undoubtedly have a sobering uh, impact on the Iranian military leaders, even if their political leaders don't pay attention to it. Uh, the military leaders will understand what it means. Well, let's switch the focus over to Benghazi, Libya. Have a report that the FBI from the United States has not been allowed access to the Benghazi attack site there at the U.S. consulate. This does not sound good for international relations. Well, uh, it's perplexing, uh, given the fact that the Libyan government has been publicly at least so supportive uh, and so apologetic for what happened in Benghazi to our ambassador. Uh, and it makes you wonder uh, whether there's not um, either a dispute inside the Libyan government uh, uh, 
about allowing the FBI to proceed with this investigation. But is it not also a crime that, uh, in reality, everybody now is confirming it was a terrorist attack, howbeit even our president continues to talk about this terrible film denigrating Islam? Well, I don't know what took them so long to understand that. That was crystal clear to everybody on the ground that was interviewed by the media afterwards, the Arab media or or the international media in Benghazi or in Libya. The Libyan president understood that it was an armed terrorist attack, and everybody understood equally that it had nothing to do with this uh, this alleged film, which nobody's ever seen, by the way. They've just seen a 14-minute trailer. Um, so, you know, why the United States government has been denying the facts is perplexing to me. Uh, there is a two-minute video made by some of the jihadis uh, that's been on the Internet since the, the day of the attacks, uh, available for anybody to see, including you know, U.S. government intelligence officers, uh, so they could analyze it. It shows them the, the, the uh, angry crowd of these young men uh, dragging our ambassador out a back window of the uh, consulate building in Benghazi. He's still alive, and uh, it shows them screaming, Allah Akbar, you know, God, God or Allah is great, uh, as they celebrate the attack on the embassy and the uh, impending death. He wasn't dead yet at that point, impending death of our ambassador. So, you know, it's pretty clear to anybody, any fair-minded person looking at this kind of evidence, what actually happened. It was a terrorist attack. The mob then came in and, and raped and murdered and dragged our ambassador through the streets, and we were just sitting there kind of wringing our hands, uh, let me ask you about the Muslim world, the Muslim-led nations of our world seeking a ban on insults on Muhammad. I I don't know that that's going to fly, but that would put the world in great fear, would it not? Well, this is an, an attempt, Jimmy, let's be very clear about it, to impose Sharia law on the rest of the world. This is one of the goals of the Islamists, wherever they are. It's one of the goals of Islam, uh, is to impose Sharia law and Muslim rule around the world. It's what they call justice. Uh, remember, um, it is fitna for us not to become Muslims. Fitna means persecution. Uh, uh, it is an insult to Islam for you and I not to accept Islam as our faith. That is what they believe. That is in their holy scripture. That's in their texts, and that is being preached from all of their pulpits by imams around the world. Uh, so th- this notion of them trying to make um, uh, any kind of, uh, not even insult uh, to uh, the prophet of Islam, but uh, any talk about him by non-Muslims into a crime uh, has to be resisted. We cannot allow that to even be seriously considered. Unfortunately, our government here in the United States is taking these things seriously. At one point, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, was ready to go along with some kind of bans on uh, talk uh, uh, about Islam by non-Muslims. I think it's outrageous. We have to resist it. They are clearly not ready for freedom when they do not have the tolerance to listen to people who do not agree with them. Ken Timmerman, looking at geopolitical activities for us right here on Prophecy Today, gives us a heads up on really what is behind each and every headline we hear about as we look at geopolitical activities. Ken, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. Thank you very much, Ken. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back, a Middle East news update. David Dolan standing by to do that right here on Prophecy Today.
In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. We're going to get right into our conversation with David Dolan. He gives us our Middle East news update. And David, we've been discussing already on the broadcast about the speeches made at the United Nations General Assembly in New York City, and in particular, three speeches, the one by President Obama, the second one by Hamadinejad, president of Iran, and then, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu addressing the world leaders and giving them somewhat of a red line number 101. That's the first course you take in red lines. And I thought he did an excellent job. But I would like to step back and have you give us an analysis of what you think. First of all, uh, the president of the United States, he continually looks back to that film supposedly, which was put together to denigrate the uh, Islamic faith, uh, Muhammad and Allah. Uh, but uh, he really didn't say anything about what the world needs to know. What is America going to do with the Iranian threat, did he? Well, no, it was sort of like the elephant in the room that uh, he never, you know, directly addressed. And it, it, uh, it seemed uh, amazing to some of the Israeli commentators simply because um, you know, a, a country that, um, uh, well, let's put it this way, uh, President George uh, W. Bush called it part of the axis of evil, and he did that for a reason. He was talking about North Korea as well, uh, Iraq as well, and he was saying these people are, are um, rogue countries, they don't listen to international uh, opinions, and they're developing nuclear weapons. And as President, as uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu pointed out this is not a dispute uh, that they're developing nuclear 
uh, capabilities, at least. These are, this is an open program. Uh, Ahmadinejad has walked around in his white smock, uh, taking reporters through the centrifuges, uh, showing them what uh, the country's doing. So this is not a secret program. And therefore, for President Obama to, to really not address what, what is undoubtedly the most critical issue that certainly the Middle East has faced in many decades, and really uh, it's a world problem because uh, if you listen carefully to the Ayatollahs and the other leaders of Iran, they're not just saying that Israel will be destroyed, that's their immediate goal, but their long-term goal is for the United States, uh, what they call the Great Satan, to be destroyed. And uh, so they have declared war. They have declared war on the West, on Israel. Um, the Saudis are worried. Everybody else is worried. And it seems like the President of the United States is, uh, is fishing on a fishing trip or, or you know, <laughs> on vacation or something. It just seems, seemed odd to a lot of uh, people that watched that speech that he really didn't address that issue the way it should have been. And at the same time, the President of Iran Hamadanijad stands up, pounding his chest with his radical rhetoric. He did not seem to give an inch on what the world is really concerned about. No, and Jimmy, again, this isn't uh, this isn't a first-run movie. This is a, a, a repeat. We've seen this performance now four or five times. Uh, Ahmadinejad going to the um, you know the largest uh, financial center in the world and. Uh, uh, one of America's, certainly, uh, its media center, its financial center, a very important city, and uh, uh, talking about destroying uh, one of America's closest allies, um, talking uh, nonsense again about how uh, Iran is this ancient culture that uh, embodies this great people. Well, all that's true. Uh, Persia is an ancient uh, power. Uh, this is the modern incarnation of it, uh, sadly a very... Uh, radical Muslim uh, incarnation, but nevertheless, uh, saying we're the oldest and the Jews have no no being no right being here, uh, is just such an absurd statement. It was ancient Persia that invaded uh, ancient uh, Israel. Uh, you know, Israel is a is a uh, <laughs> okay. It's just crazy, uh, and, and yet uh, he does it every year, and we get sort of this uh, lame response from most of the rest of the world to it. And it's, it's really, Jimmy, if the U.N. had been in existence in the 30s, it's like Hitler had been five times to New York, and each time he'd said, I'm going to wipe out the Jewish people, I'm going to eliminate Europe of all of its Jews, I'm going to you know, invade several of my neighbors uh, because I'm going to set up this huge World Reich that's going to rule the world. And, and everyone was just yawning. Well, that's, that's not quite the way it was, but... It was true then, too, with the, the British and others thinking they could just appease Hitler with a few slaps on the wrist, and that's the theory that still is going on uh, here in the United States and others, that these economic sanctions are going to make an impact on Iran. Well, they've been in place for years, and the Iranians continue to enrich uranium, and, and all that Netanyahu uh, pointed out was that they are now at the final stages of this program. They can have a nuclear capability, nuclear weapons capability within a year. He says half a year. The experts agree, and, and the, uh, the, he pointed out this is not his, uh, you know, based on his uh, Secret Service intelligence or something. This is based on the 
UN's Atomic Energy Agency, their findings going over there and inspecting the program up front, they're saying that they've now enriched uranium up to 20% and that taking it up, as, as Netanyahu very vividly demonstrated, taking it up to weapons-grade uh, quality is, a, is a, a very swift process. It could be accomplished in just months. And so he's basically saying, folks, we're at the red line. We, the Jewish people, who were a third wiped out in the Holocaust, we're not going to just listen to another country saying we're going to destroy you and sit back and wait until they can do it. And if that, wasn't, if that message wasn't absolutely clear, then nothing was from uh, these speeches this week. Yes, absolutely. And the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, so articulate anyway. But when he brought that graphic to the stage and showed us where the red line should be placed, man, that it was a very important moment, I do believe. In fact, the Prime Minister of Canada, Prime Minister Harper, on a visit with Prime Minister Netanyahu, made the statement that Uh, Israel's prime minister's message at the United Nations is reverberating across the world. I'm hoping somebody's out there paying attention to what was said. Mahmoud Abbas came to the platform there at the United Nations. He continually tries to see if uh, somehow the Palestinian people can can become a part of the United Nations, albeit maybe not a member, but, uh, you know, he's continually putting his effort forth, too. Well, he is, and, you know, we we have to recall that the Palestinians could have had a state in 1948 if if they had accepted the U.N.'s partition plan for a Jewish state and an Arab state there. Uh, They rejected it. They went to war. They lost. They tried again in 67. They tried again in 73 to militarily destroy Israel, and since then they seem to realize that's not... Uh, likely to happen, although the Iranians are talking about it, but they're talking about a nuclear attack, which uh, the Palestinians cannot uh, drop a nuclear bomb on themselves, can they? So they would be, uh, you know, this is a little little mentioned fact, uh, Jimmy, that just on the side, that if, if Iran drops a nuclear weapon on Israel, the fallout is going to kill millions of Arabs, millions of Palestinians, millions of Jordanians. The cloud would actually head east, because that's the prevailing weather pattern, it would go into Iraq, it would go into Iran itself. So uh, it's just such utter uh, uh, craziness. But the Palestinians are trying again to get recognition at the UN, and and that's their right to do. But uh, until they actually set up a state, they're not, and and they're not going to have that until they deal with Hamas and decide who's really in charge of them. Uh, But if they settle down on a more moderate leadership uh, and and get rid of some of the radicals, they will have a state uh, in that case, and uh, then they can, you know, be a full member of the U.N., but that's not happening uh, this week or next week, that's for sure. About 30 seconds, David. Talk to me about the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a seven-day celebration in Israel and around the entire Jewish world where the Jewish people live in their sukkah, a tabernacle, remembering how it was in the wanderings in the wilderness for those 40 years. But what's thrilling to me in Israel, Christians from all over the world come to celebrate with the Jewish people as well. They do, and I've just had a report from David Parsons, a good friend of mine who's uh, on the staff at uh, the Christian Embassy, and they have a full house again. People have come from South America and uh, Africa and Asia and uh, and North America and and Europe as usual, and uh, despite all the talk of war and all the 
the crumbling things going on in the region, the war in Syria, etc., people have still come, Christians have still come, and they're showing their support for Israel and standing with the country at this uh, very difficult time. The Bible talks about it, Zechariah chapter 14, where all the world will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's talking about in the future. Uh, but this is a precursor of things to come with Christians from around the world gathering in Israel, in particular in Jerusalem, for the Feast of Tabernacles. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East news update for us, he's been a journalist for many, many years in that part of the world. His vantage point, the city of Jerusalem, and that's where you can see everything happening in the Middle East. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. We appreciate your time with us. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to get insight into the Feast of Tabernacles from an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung here in Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. and We're in the second day of our weekend prophecy conference. It's taking place at the high school here in Jersey Shore. The church was too small last time. We went to the high school last night, a great meeting tonight and all day Sunday. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you come and join us at the Jersey Shore High School in Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. Upcoming, some great interviews. You do not want to miss them. Dr. Rob Congdon's going to be talking about how 11 of the ministers in the European Union want to put together a federal state that will indeed have their own army. Sounds prophetic to me. That's right here on Prophecy Today. We now bring to these microphones a rabbi. A rabbi who is a regular guest of us right here on Prophecy Today, one of our regular broadcast partners, Rabbi Yoel Karen, whom I'm talking about. We promised we would talk to him about Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the last of the seven Jewish feasts that the Lord gave the Jewish people way back in the times of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23. And this is somewhat of a joyous feast. They had a very solemn day earlier this week with Yom Kippur, but this is a very special time of celebration. Rabbi, thank you for joining us, and Chag Sameach to you. Chag Sameach, and a joyous feast in Hebrew. Yes, amen. Well, that's exactly what we want to talk about. Uh, talk to me just a few moments after Yom Kippur. 
there's about a four-day period before you begin this next feast, which is Feast of Tabernacles, or in Hebrew, Sukkot. And we're going to explain what that's all about in just a moment. But this is a very busy time, is it not, getting ready for the Feast of Tabernacles? I'm telling you, as soon as Yom Kippur is over, no sooner have you taken that drink of water, then you start hearing hammers and, and drills and things and lumber. and it's, it's, it's a crazy time. It's like full-on construction boom going on with people building their, uh, building their tabernacles. Now, talk to us that may be eavesdropping on the conversation. Tell us about what you do. You prepare a sukkah or a tabernacle. What is that? Just give us a description of what it is and why are you doing this? Well, the, the Torah, the Bible tells us explicitly, when we came out of Egypt, we were ordered to, or commanded to remember the exodus from Egypt. It's one of these things that we do, just like Passover, where we have certain things that God told us to do as part of our covenant with him to remember what he did for us when he brought us out of Egypt. And when we were in the wilderness during that 40 years, we lived in these temporary huts. When we would camp, people set up tents. They set up these temporary huts uh, made of palm branches, made of whatever the people could find around. But they weren't like sturdy homes. They were definitely very temporary, temporal structures that weren't intended to last. And so what we do is once a year... The Bible tells us to build for ourselves Sukkot, meaning uh, sometimes it's translated as booths, translated as tabernacle, meaning a temporary dwelling, to build for ourselves, every family to build one of these for themselves and to live in it for seven days. Uh, many of the Jewish people will stay in their sukkah or in their tabernacle all seven days, or at least have their meals there, that the children play there, etc. Absolutely. At the very least, you have to eat all of your meals there. You have to, all of your sit-down meals have to be eaten there. And we're not allowed to, uh, to sit down and have a, a meal, or Shabbat meal, or whatever. We're not allowed to sit down and have a meal outside of the sukkah. Feast of Tabernacles is also a joyous time as you celebrate the harvest of some of the wonderful fruits and nuts and things in Israel, is it not? Absolutely, because you've, you've got this as the, the fall harvest. You have this, we have two harvests, the spring and the fall harvest. And this is when a lot of this stuff comes in. The, the date trees right now, I'm sure you've, you've, you've been here for so many years now, you can imagine in your head when I tell you that those date trees, those branches are weighed down heavy right now with, with dates, those huge bunches of dates pulling the branches down right now. And it's just, it's a really amazing thing to see because right now is about the time they ripen up and the branches that have the dates also turn this beautiful bright yellow color and it's, it's really pretty to see this, this fall fruit. What does it mean that this is one of the pilgrim feasts? I understand that Passover and also uh, the Feast of Pentecost would be a pilgrim feast, but Tabernacles is as well. What's that talking about? I mean, three times per year, God told us that every man is to show his face in front of, in front of him, meaning that every Jewish male needs to come up to Jerusalem and show themselves before God, present themselves before God three times a year. And so this is, this is, uh, this is the, the law, is that we go up. Right now we don't have a temple, so it's, it's really a, the, we're su- you're supposed to be going up and offering a festival sacrifice. And no one is, the thing is, no one is to show up empty-handed. If we were to go today, we would be showing up empty-handed because we don't have a temple for us to bring those offerings. But God willing, we'll rectify that soon. But that's what it means, is we're all supposed to go up. Every Israelite, no matter where they are in the world, is supposed to. And this is the way it was done. 
when there was a, a temple in Jerusalem, Jews would come from Alexandria, Egypt, from Rome, from everywhere, from all over. They would come and come and camp in Jerusalem during these seven days. Well, without that temple, it's not possible really to do what the Bible commands each Jewish person to do. But I would imagine that's probably most of the motivation behind wanting to have that temple up and operating pretty soon. Absolutely. A Jew that is serious about the Hebrew faith, that is not just doing what they're doing because they were raised that way, but doing what they're doing because they believe it and, and they want to do God's will, they're, they're not happy with the situation that we have now. And they want it fixed, and they want it fixed now. We need a temple, or we're, we're doing, you know, we have an incomplete faith. We have an incomplete system here. This is not the way God set it up. This is not what he asked us to do. Would you say that uh, the Jewish people are prepared right now to put that temple up, possibly with the concern about how are they going to get rid of that gold dome building where the temple's supposed to stand? But have all the other preparations been made? Are there some things that still need to be done? You know, there are, there are still a few things that need to be done, but mostly the battle right now is for the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. And God can do that in his own way and in his own time. We saw when when the exiles came back from Babylon, from the Babylonian exile, they sat there for an entire generation and just resolutely refused. They're building their own houses, building virtual palaces for themselves while God's house lay in ruins, which is exactly the situation that we have today. And God sent uh, Haggai, the prophet, to, to castigate them for this and to call them to task for it. That look at you, you all sit in your, your nice houses while mine lays in ruins. You know, don't you care? Doesn't anyone care? And that's, that's sort of the message that I think that people need to hear today. And something needs to happen to make them care. Over the years that uh, Judy and I have lived there in Jerusalem, we have been very interesting in watching how the Christian community of the world would come and join with the Jewish people there in Israel to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, they have uh, some great gatherings of Christians, up to five, six, seven thousand of them coming in. This is interesting as it relates to what Zechariah talks about uh, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. What, what a beautiful thing to actually wake up in the morning, step outside your home, and live Bible prophecy, to actually see it being fulfilled, to see all the nations of the world coming to Jerusalem, just as the prophet said that they would. And I tell you, it's something else, to, to watch that parade. My kids go to it every year to see all of the different nations. Uh, Papua New Guinea, they're coming, and these guys, they've got the feather headdresses and, and everything, and they're bringing, they brought gold and gave to the Temple Institute to go towards the temple. It's an amazing thing to see. That is really, truly a wonderful time in the state of Israel and a great celebration. Well, uh, referring to that Zechariah 14 passage, it seems to me to say that not only will this happen now and we see a, a precursor to what will be in the future, that forever, when that temple is standing on the Temple Mount, these nations will continue to come. They will be obligated to come and celebrate Feast of Tabernacles. That's, uh, you're saying, the fulfillment of prophecy. That's the foretaste of what's going to be for a long time in the future. Absolutely. It's just a small taste. And we know from there in, in that passage in Zechariah that the, the coming of the rains and everything for each nation will be dependent on whether they come up or not. It's, there's a lot more to come, but it's nice to see it beginning, to see it with our own eyes and to be able to, t to touch it and taste it. He's saying, Step, you've built these houses for yourselves once a year. Come out here and be with me. Come out here and be with me. And that's why we're not allowed, when we build the rooftop on these things, it's not allowed to be, you can't put your palm branches on top so thick 
that you can't look up and see heaven. You have to be able to see through and to see heaven. And that's, what, that's really, I think, that's one of the lessons here. Everything that we see in this world, we've got to be able to see through it and see what the reality is behind it and to see heaven and to see where our real goal is. Wow. What a great thought. Be able to see heaven and understand the, the directives come from up above. Rabbi Yoel Karen giving us insight into the Feast of Tabernacles, some of his personal experiences, as well as the desire to rebuild a temple so they'll be able to honor the directive from the Lord to go up to the temple and offer thanksgiving unto him at Feast of Tabernacles. Rabbi, thank you so very much. Chag Sameach, my good friend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, and Chag Sameach. You know, that was a very, very interesting conversation with Rabbi Yoel Karen. He gave us insight from an Orthodox Jewish perspective on this special holy day upcoming, the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, that is always a joy to be able to talk with him and get this insight that sometimes we Christians do not have. But it's a joy as well to have our next broadcast partner, Dr. Rob Congdon reports on the European Union and what is going on in that region of the world, which is so key to our understanding of the end times as well. Rob, I want to talk with you, first of all, about what we have been focusing on here on the broadcast today, the speeches made at the United Nations General Assembly in New York City, in particular the Obama Address, uh, President of Iran, Hamadinejad, and Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. Any comments, any reaction coming out of the European Union on these speeches at the UN? Well, the reactions that I've been picking up on are pretty much what we would expect. Uh, uh, for the most part, they basically are ignoring Abinajab. Uh, they figured out or assumed what he was going to be saying. They heard him say it, those who heard it, those who remained in the meeting. And so it, there was no surprise there. Uh, it only uh, further, I guess the term I would use, is makes Europe ill at ease at what they're hearing. Uh, Europe is getting supportive of Israel in the idea that something has to be done, but of course the true European stance is it's got to be diplomatic. They really are trying to avoid any kind of uh, overt military action almost at any cost. But uh, they are very concerned by it. They were concerned that uh, Netanyahu's speech stirred things up, and well, well it should, and uh, has got them talking again. So that, that was good. Um, almost no reaction to Obama. I think there is a growing disillusionment. Uh, over President Obama as a leader, and so consequently the comments have been very few or not, nothing significant uh, other than polite observations. I know that uh, Canada is not part of the European Union, uh, but Prime Minister Netanyahu went up to visit uh, the Prime Minister there, Harper, and Harper has already cut off relationships with Iran and thus, uh, this was a plus as far as the Israelis were concerned. I believe the Prime Minister of Israel went there to uh, just endorse what he has done. But it was very interesting what Harper had to say to the Prime Minister of Israel. He said that his speech is verberating throughout the entire world. And that graphic that he used on the red line, very effective, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think what you're hearing in Harper is a 
is a very positive stand. We need to keep in mind that uh, Harper is, uh, some people believe he's a Christian. Uh, he certainly is pro-Christian in his thinking, and therefore uh, he would see the situation over there very similar. We, 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 I, I neglected to mention, which we should, is that both Britain, France, and Germany are calling on the European Union to give more sanctions over Iran. So there is a reaction. Uh, they want to get tougher with it. And uh, I think uh, somebody such as Harper, speaking for Canada, can have a significant influence. We tend to forget about Canada to our north, but it does have an influence in world affairs because of its ties through the Commonwealth of Nations, and it also has strong ties over into China. So uh, I think it's very significant that he would say that. That would sort of reinforce what was spoken at the, uh, at the U.N. by Netanyahu. Well, let's focus back on Europe right now, Rob, and let's talk about the economic crisis going on. looks like uh, the people of Greece there in Athens, when they erupted with violent protests, are not eager to move along the direction that the EU is basically directing Greece to follow economically. Oh, absolutely. What we're seeing now is moving through each of the countries that we would expect it to sort of progress. Each of them, they're, they're struggling. They've recognized they're at the point something has to be done now. They've put it off as long as they can. What it means is, and of course there's two views. Uh, one view says government should keep spending. The other says you should go into an austerity, austerity mode. And as they do that, the people just don't want to give up all the benefits they had. If you'll notice, the striking people or the people demonstrating are either from the public service unions or they're just individuals who are, in most cases, have been getting really extremely uh, large benefits in their jobs, and the government's been very generous to them. So you have really um, a tense time that's growing. People don't want to step backwards. They thought it would last forever. Now it's striking home as the unemployment figures start approaching in some of the countries up to 20, 25% of unemployed, and the people are rebelling. Spain has had some serious uh, demonstrations there, and uh, in fact, uh, Catalonia has even been talking about time to get out of Spain. So we, we have a lot of unrest, and it seems to be growing, and as I've suggested before, the ultimate solution is the EU is going to have to clamp down on all the countries and not allow the countries themselves to, to just make their own choices. Well, that's what the Iron Lady, Angela Merkel, is telling Europe. They must stay the course and reform this situation economically. Uh, that's right. She really is. Uh, she's kind of in the old Thatcher mode, the Iron Lady. Uh, it's, it's really a struggle here for Europe because most of them are resenting uh, Germany's influence and power, and yet Germany is the one that is in the position to be in the driver's seat right now. So uh, they're saying the way it should go, and Europe at this point has to be buckling under and try to deal with the, the home fires, if you will, their people back home, and try and deal with the unrest. You know, I've always heard that what happens in Europe jumps the Atlantic Ocean and comes to America maybe a month or two or a year or two later. That looks like a very viable possibility, doesn't it? Uh, exactly. I've been saying that, especially this last couple of weeks as I've been speaking, and people are asking questions. I said, we need to look at them as kind of the preview of what could happen here. Uh, we certainly hope we don't see some of this unrest, uh, 
but governments are being brought up finally face-to-face with the fact that it just can't go on or can't be ignored. And so uh, the tensions are growing, and uh, various people are starting to speak out, and um, uh, we'll just have to watch where it goes. But I do expect, uh, at the least, the economic impact, and they're calling it now that Europe is about to go into a recession, a true recession again, uh, that impact will be felt here just within a few months later. Hey, I've got to ask you about this story that I read. Eleven European Union states are now charting a course for a federal government, a federal Europe with an army. Boy, that sounds like Bible prophecy. Well, it not only sounds like Bible prophecy, but what we've been talking about for two to three years now, uh, you're going to have to have a single government, a powerful government, that is over all the 27 countries of the European Union, and that government can only succeed if it has the, the, the might, if you will, carries the sword to enforce its rules. Therefore, you have to have some form of military, and what we've been saying, and I firmly believe, is the economics is going to force them into that position. Uh, there was an interesting little final line to a story this week, and, and I've got to mention it, and it kind of fits here because we're starting to look about where things are going. Um, in Italy, there has been a lot of discussion. A former prime minister and actually former president of the European Union, Berlusconi, has made all kinds of strong statements. And the current gentleman, he's 69 years old, who's head of Italy right now trying to solve the problems, this is what we need to note. He was appointed senator for life last year. He is not elected. He doesn't have to be associated with any party to become to be renewed as prime minister in their next election. That sounds like the ancient Roman Empire where we start talking about senators that are elected for life. So uh, a little line most people have ignored, and yet it says to me, wow, uh, the thinking in Europe is just like you're suggesting, one government with a military, and now we even see in Italy that they have a appointed senator for life. Very significant when we consider the Bible. Yes, indeed it is. That scenario found in God's prophetic words seemingly being played out in the European Union today. Dr. Rob Congdon, he covers the European Union for us right here on Prophecy Today. Rob, thank you so very much. We'll talk again next week. It's good to be with you. Lord bless. Goodbye. You know, it's always good to have a conversation with Dr. Rob Congdon updating what is happening there in the European continent, and in particular, the European Union, is a necessity as we try to look at geopolitical activities and determine where we are on God's calendar of activities, the prophetic events that will unfold in the end times. We always do that when we talk with Rob. Right now, though, It's that time of the year, the Jewish Holy Days, and Steve Herzig is a regular with us when we come together to discuss some of the Jewish Holy Days. This is the last of the seven Jewish feasts. Earlier, I talked on the broadcast with Rabbi Yoel Karen, and we got the Orthodox Jewish insight into what happens at Feast of Tabernacles. He told us about how he was preparing his sukkah and all the events surrounding that and The desire of the Jewish people, or at least many of them, to have a temple so they can participate in that pilgrim feast time, the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. 
And Steve, let me just start with that. I was talking with a rabbi. He was so appreciative of the fact that Christians from around the world, many, many nations of the world, come into Jerusalem at the time of Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate. Now, there is a directive in the Word of God, the book of Zechariah will do it forever, but this is a special, special treat for the Christians to participate with the Jewish people, and it's an entree by which they can introduce the Messiah as well, is it not? Oh, Jimmy, absolutely. It's a wonderful thing. As, as a Christian reads their Bible and understands the significance of tabernacles, uh, it's really a thanksgiving, a reminder of God's faithfulness. And Christians are so thankful uh, for what the Lord Jesus has done as their Savior and recognizing that he's the Jewish Messiah. And as they read the Bible in a normal way, they recognize that God has a future for that country and for that city. And or a temple that's going to be there. And so there are usually thousands of Christians every year who want to show their support for Israel by standing with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who said, I'll bless them that bless thee and curse him who curseth thee. And so I, it's an encouragement to hear that the rabbi is so excited. We're finding more and more that Jewish people are paying attention to what Christian Zionists are thinking and doing. And this is surely a unique way that the Christian can celebrate with their Jewish friends, not only in Israel, where they have the special events where the Christians and the Jews come together as a big parade in the city of Jerusalem, uh, but where they are here in America as well. They can do this with their friends down the street, can they not? Oh, absolutely. In fact, Jimmy, even if a Jewish friend that a Christian has is not a real observant person, you know, uh, Lord willing, Sunday night Jewish people will be celebrating tabernacles. It begins... If a, if a Christian brought over uh, some sort of fall fruit, vegetable kind of thing in, in remembrance of, the, uh, of Sukkot and just went there and uh, brought it to them and said, I understand that Jewish people celebrate this. We want to rejoice with you during this time of year. Even if the people aren't religious and even if they don't celebrate tabernacles, the fact that a Christian would come and say, I recognize what Jewish people are doing now, and we want to just give you uh, something as it's celebrated, they will be the talk of that family. It, that, that will put a smile on their face. It might even cause them to search the scriptures themselves to find out more about their own holiday. Yeah, that would be a very, very wonderful experience if that would take place. Talk to me. You come out of an Orthodox Jewish background, so you must have celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles when you were a boy. Uh, what was it like to you to live or at least spend some part of your day in that sukkah? Well, Jimmy, you know, right after Yom Kippur ends, the very first thing that happens from a, a negative kind of thing where you're fasting and praying and you're repenting, uh, now you're breaking your fast, you're realizing that five days from then uh, comes the sukkah. And so uh, at, when I was growing up, the sukkah was built at our synagogue. And we always had opportunity. You wanted to eat inside the sukkah, rejoice. We said there's certain prayers, a liturgy of prayers that are recited, uh, the hanging down of fruits and vegetables over the roof, which has slats in it so you could see the, the skies. And remember the faithfulness of God. He was with them the whole time during their journeys uh, in the wilderness and how, the, how faithful he was. And when we celebrated it, we were, it reminded us of God's faithfulness to us as well. 
You know, I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 17. And Steve, as I think about that, when Peter, James, and John went with Jesus Christ into the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Hermon there in northern Israel, he saw Jesus, he saw Elijah, and he saw Moses. And Peter then said, hey, let's put up three sukkahs or three tabernacles. And that was just looking into the future how tabernacles really sets the stage for the thousand-year millennial kingdom in the future to come to pass. No doubt about it. Um, my mind goes to the same passages. Uh, first thing he wanted to do when he saw those three, he wanted to build a tabernacle. And then we come to John chapter 1 and realize that Jesus tabernacled. And whenever God tabernacles, there's his glory. So you have the glory of God in the tabernacle and in the temple. And in Matthew uh, 17, you have Jesus, in a sense, unzipping his glory. He revealed it to those three disciples who... Peter just kept on talking until God finally, in essence, said, hey, just keep quiet. (laughs) So it's an amazing thing. Yes, it is. I love that passage. You eavesdropping on the conversation, go to the book of Matthew, the last couple of verses in Matthew 16, and then read chapter 17. It will be a blessing to you. Well, as the rabbi said to me as we concluded our conversation earlier, Chaksameach, which means have a joyous, blessed holy day, I say the same to you, Steve Chaksameach, and thanks for joining us this time. Hey, thanks, Jimmy. You too. Thank you, Steve. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Prophecy Q&A right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. This is our last half hour, and at the bottom of the hour, the last eight minutes, I'm going to pull everything together that we've talked about with our broadcast partners, and we'll see how it fits in to the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word. I'll take a look at the book, last eight minutes of this particular time. And Prophecy Q&A upcoming. Jim Jr. is joining me now. Jim, do you have some questions that uh, may be provocative that we can talk about that have come in from our listeners around the world? I sure do, Dad. You know, every week we get hundreds of questions that come into our website through social media, and I do have a couple questions for you today. Looking forward to those. We're here in Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. Uh, The Calvary Baptist Church is putting on a weekend prophecy conference. Last time we were here, we packed out the church house. And so what we're going to do is use the high school auditorium in Jersey Shore. We'd love to have you come and join us. Had a great meeting last night there at the high school, tonight and then twice on Sunday morning and evening. The meetings start at 7 o'clock in the evening. That's tonight. We'll be studying God's Word. I'm going to be talking about a very interesting subject, the Palestinian Authority and how they are wanting, they just petitioned the United Nations for an independent state called Palestine. We'll get into that with the Word of God if you can come and join us at the High School Auditorium in Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. Thank you so very much for participating with us on our website, prophecytoday.com. And I want to remind you that I have a poll question. Let me read that poll question to you. And this has been the topic of our program today. At the United Nations General Assembly, the leaders of the world debated Iran's nuclear program and, in essence, the faith of the Israelis, the Jewish state of Israel. This was done on the stage of an international political and governmental body. 
Could this be the precursor of the one world government prophesied in Revelation chapter 18 when the Antichrist will rule and reign over a one world government from Babylon? Please go to our website. It's on the home page. Love to have you answer it. Well, Jim, we have something very special to announce. It's the fact that Prophecy Today is now going to be on television. Talk to us about what's happening. Well, Dad, we're partnering with one of our broadcast partners, Brandon House. Brandon has put together a brand new program. It's called Worldview Weekend TV. And we are now putting our television programs, plus we're going to have interviews with you and newsmakers from around the world as we start to do this television program with Brandon on WorldviewWeekendTV.com. You can go there, take a look at it, and also it'll be on our website, Prophecy Today Television. You know what's exciting to me? Jimmy, we spent, you and I both, because you were helping do the production, I was the one co-teaching with Mark DeHaan as we did 18 years of programming from the Middle East, and in particular, from the state of Israel. So we're going to be able to use some of that material on Prophecy Today television. I'm really excited about this particular project. Well, I gave the poll question just a moment ago. Let's see what some of the questions coming in from our listeners might be, Jim. Let's go ahead with Prophecy Q&A. Our first question this week comes in kind of as a statement. Larry sends in a statement. He says that the tribe of Nephtali has been located and are returning to Israel. They were located in the India and Nepal areas. What are your thoughts on this, Ed? I don't believe there are any lost tribes of Israel. I believe all the tribes, all 12, have come back into the land. Might I suggest you study the book of Ezra, chapter 2. Remember in Ezra, chapter 1, God raised up a Medo-Persian leader, Cyrus, and in fact, Bible prophecy had predicted he would come on the scene. Isaiah 44 and 45 indicates that there would be a man named Cyrus who would give permission for the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. There in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it talks about that as the case. In chapter 2 of Ezra, it lists the people who were able to come back and rebuild that temple. 50,000 of them would return with Zerubbabel, and it lists the leaders of the families, tells us where they were from. If you'll study that very closely, you'll be aware of the fact that all 12 tribes are represented when they come back into the land after the Babylonian captivity. In fact, over in chapter 6, they have a dedicatory service of that temple that they will rebuild. That would be the second temple. And at that service, it says they offered 12 he-goats for the 12 tribes of Israel, and all of Israel was back in the land at that time. In addition to that, the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10, he's having a conference with his disciples, trying to brief them on how to go out and be soul winners. He says, don't go, in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 10, don't go to the Gentiles, but instead go to the whole house of Israel. Now, he wouldn't be sending his disciples out to the whole house of Israel unless all 12 tribes were back in the land. And, of course, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, there were Jews from every nation of the world gathered there in Jerusalem for that feast day. God's word is absolute. All 12 tribes have been back in the land about 2,500 years. Thomas Hopkins sends in a question. He said, you said on one of your CDs that Peter is buried in Jerusalem. Can you tell me how you know this? Also, where is the grave of Mary, the mother of our Lord? We do not know for sure exactly where Mary is buried, the Virgin Mary. 
She's either buried in Jerusalem or Ephesus. Now, remember Jesus, when he was on the cross, he asked John, his disciple, to take care of his mother. And, of course, John was the pastor of the church there in Ephesus in the last years of his life. And there is tradition that Mary has been buried there just outside of Kusadasi, which is in the southern portion of modern-day Turkey, the location of biblical Ephesus. In addition to that, there is tradition that she's buried just outside in a church located next to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, there in the Kidron Valley in the foothills of the Mount of Olives, and uh, that may well be the case as well. So this is tradition. We don't have any authentication, actually, where the Virgin Mary has been buried. Now, when it comes to Peter, where is he buried? Let me just say he's not buried in Rome. He's not in the basement of the Vatican because Peter never went to Rome. Study the Word of God. The Bible says he went off to try to establish a church in the uttermost parts of the earth. And 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13 says he went to the city of Babylon. Now, that's not a cryptic name for Rome, Italy. It's Babylon. And we take the Bible literally, and that's where he established a church. You see, at the time when Peter was going out to the far ends of the world to establish these churches, Babylon was the second most populated Jewish city in all the world, and there he established a church. He said, all the saints in Babylon salute you. And so Peter never actually went into Rome. I do not believe he's buried there. But tradition again says that he is buried in Jerusalem. And so we've gone by what tradition has to say to us. We authenticate information that we get about, for example, geographical location, etc., uh, first of all, with the Word of God. And we, if we do not have an exact statement to deal with a particular issue as it relates to the Bible, and then we fall back on tradition and finally archaeology. Now, nobody's been able to dig up the grave of Peter, but tradition says he was buried in the city of Jerusalem, and that's where we come up with that, Thomas. Hmm. Thanks, Thomas, for that question. Nancy sends in a question. She says, how can Adam, and this is probably in, in reference to your statements about the Temple Mount, how can Adam have been created on the Temple Mount and the center of the Garden of Eden be there too? The Bible said Adam was created and then placed to the east in Eden. It seems he may have been created on the Temple Mount, but then moved to the Garden of Eden in the plains of Shinar, but cannot have been created there and it be the center of the Garden too. Well, Nancy, I have a question for you. You're telling me that I don't know where the Garden of Eden is and where Adam was created according to the Word of God, but then you make a statement in your question. It seems that he may have been created on the Temple Mount, but uh, then moved to the Garden of Eden in the plains of Shinar. Now, you're supposing that the Garden of Eden is located in the plains of Shinar, number one, and number two, that he was indeed created on the Temple Mount and then moved over there. We don't have any information as to that being the case. You said the Bible says something. You said the Bible said Adam was created and then placed to the east of Eden. Well, let me read from those scriptures exactly what the Bible does say. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden, and in the King James Bible, which I have in my hand, says, eastward in Eden. Now, I was confused when I read that verse, because in order to understand from where eastward would be to Eden, I have to have a source of a starting point, and I don't have a starting point there. So I went to Strong's Concordance, and I found out the word in Hebrew, gadim, 
not only means eastward, in fact, that is one of its translations, but most of the time, that word gadim is translated before time or aforetime. And so then I went back and read the verse like this, and the Lord God planted a garden before in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Well, when did the Lord create the Garden of Eden? It was on the third day of creation. When you go back to Genesis chapter 1, which records the six days of creation, starting in verse 9, you see, And the Lord God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God planted, or called the dry land earth, and he gathered together of the waters and called them seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 11 of Genesis chapter 1, the record of the third day of creation. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. God created the Garden of Eden on the third day of creation. Chapter 2 would be further details as it relates to chapter 1. You see, have in chapter 1, creation of man. Chapter 2, the details are the information which is additional help to understanding chapter 1, chapter 3, the fall of man. And that would be the first three chapters. We can go through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. I'll not do it because of time today. Uh, But he created on the third day the Garden of Eden, and then on the sixth day, which is what chapter 2 tells us, he created man, and he placed him in the Garden of Eden that was already there, not eastward of the Temple Mount. It doesn't say anything about the Temple Mount. Judaism and all the scholarship in Orthodox Judaism says that that stone underneath that gold dome building, the Dome of the Rock, is the foundation stone. That's the location where Adam was created by God, actually by Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.16 says, by him, by Jesus Christ, were all things created. The Temple Mount is the center of the Garden of Eden. And I think that it is very important that we study the Word, but understand what the Word of God is saying to us. By the way, you're saying then, if I understand your question there, Nancy, that the Garden of Eden it would be in the plains of Shinar. Well, that's the location of Babylon. That will be the headquarters for the Antichrist in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. You might consider that Shinar would be the location between the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, but that has nothing to do where the Garden of Eden is. When you go back to chapter 2 of Genesis and verse 10, it says, One river came out of the Garden of Eden to water the garden, and from thence, someplace outside the Garden of Eden, that one river, which would be the Gihon River, which is talked about in the Bible in six locations. First Kings chapter 1 would be the first where King David wanted to anoint his son Solomon to be king. He sent his servant down to the Gihon to get some water so he could anoint his son Solomon to become king of Israel. That's the one river in the Garden of Eden. We have a a great, great study on return to Eden, and Jimmy, in fact, has a video project that he's working on very intently right now, and that is entitled Return to Eden. But if you'd like to get our five-hour study to get more in-depth information about the true location of the Garden of Eden, you can go to our website, prophecytoday.com, or call our toll-free number, 877-674-3298. You can order that same five-hour audio CD. It'll be great help for you to understand 
where truly the Garden of Eden is. By the way, Nancy, thank you for asking the question. We always appreciate questions that will help us all learn more because, Nancy, I have to tell you, every time I get a question from somebody, I need to freshen up my thinking, uh, you know, exactly what is the Word of God talking about, and I did that in light of uh, your question, so appreciate your help along that line, Nancy. Well, those were great questions. Thank you for the opportunity of responding to your interest in Bible prophecy. Be sure to go to our website, prophecytoday.com. We have a section there where you can go and see if your question's there, and I'll give the answer. Go to our website, prophecytoday.com. And remember, Jim Jr. does a program on Internet radio. That's heard at Prophecy Today Radio every Thursday at 7 o'clock. He takes your questions and answers them as well. Right now, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand like Daniel where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298 or visit us at schoolofprophets.org the book of revelation is god's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the christians this symbolism filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand especially when simply reading it from beginning to end dr jimmy DeYoung's latest book revelation a chronology takes a walk through the prophetic book of revelation in the order that the events will take place chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy to understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, a chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end times prophecy book that God has preserved in his scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we've focused on the different world leaders at the United Nations General Assembly in New York City who spoke to the issues of today. There were differences of opinion that were expressed by these world leaders. We have our broadcast partners with reports telling us exactly what they thought about these different speeches, the analysis of how these world leaders expressed themselves on the problems of today, and filled in some of the blanks on these speeches. For example, Ken Timmerman, he's our man in Washington, D.C. He looks at geopolitical activities for us. We looked at the Obama speech. He commented on what 
the president did or did not say, talked about the red lines that the president of the United States is refusing to set, which the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, wants to have put in place, reflected on President Hamadinejad's speech, this Iranian leader, uh, just his radical rhetoric expressed even on the stage at the United Nations. Uh, causes real concern around the world. And, of course, we talked about the interest in the Netanyahu speech and the simplicity of it. In fact, David Dolan, covering the Middle East News Update for us, explained the simplicity of Netanyahu's speech. Very, very simple understanding. It's a threat 101. In other words, if you're concerned about it, here's what we need to be looking for and why we need to have red lines. We also talked about and reflected on the president of Iran's speech there, the radical rhetoric he exposed. And we mentioned that the Palestinian Authority president, Mahmoud Abbas, was there wanting to become a non-member affiliate of the United Nations. Dr. Rob Congdon, he covers the European Union for us. He gave us the thoughts coming out of the European Union. Not much being said about those U.N. speeches. But when we talk with Rob about the potential for a federal union and an army, that really excited us as it relates to Bible prophecy. Well, we also had Rabbi Yoel Karen, and he gave us insight into the Feast of Tabernacles from an Orthodox Jewish perspective. All of these conversations, by the way, can be heard on our website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. That's radio when you want it, at your convenience, when it's good for you to listen to it. You can re-listen to any of the conversations maybe you heard during the live broadcast or you can call a friend and tell them that they need to go listen to some of these conversations. Again, the address, it's prophecytoday.com, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. You know, world leaders discussing the possible destruction of the Jewish state of Israel on the stage of an international gathering of world leaders. I happen to believe is a precursor to the end-time scenario that can be found in Bible prophecy. You have a moment. Think about this with me. At the United Nations General Assembly held in New York City, leaders from the nations of our world gathered together to discuss the problems that are facing us today. At the top of the agenda, of course, was the threat from the Iranian nuclear program, especially on Israel, but not only on Israel, actually on the Middle East, the entire Middle East, and even the rest of the world as well. A nuclear-powered Iran is of much concern to everybody. However, there are differing opinions as how to deal with this threat. United States President, President Obama, says that we must continue to talk with the Iranians and hope that diplomacy will work. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu says that the world needs to give Iran a red line on its nuclear program. And if they go beyond that red line, then the world must deal with the threat, which might actually be a preemptive strike by the Israeli Defense Force on Iran's nuclear program. Well, Bible prophecy does reveal to us that Iran and Israel will have a confrontation in the last days. And that's found in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 5. Ezekiel 38, along with Daniel 11 and Psalm 83, 
is talking about and predicting for the future, and it seems like we are at the future time right now for these prophecies to be fulfilled. It's talking about an alignment of nations who will form a coalition to try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. There is more prophetically, of course, to the present situation than I just talked about. And you know, at an international political governmental body like the United Nations, having this debate is indeed a precursor to the prophetic scenario that will be found in Bible prophecy in the future fulfillment right here on this earth. Revelation chapter 18 foretells of a one-world government in the future that will be based in Babylon. Now, that's modern-day Iraq, Babylon, about 58 miles out of downtown Baghdad on the shores of the Euphrates River. And in Revelation 18, it talks about this one-world governmental economic political system being headed up by a world dictator who will tell everybody what they must do in order to sustain life. Do you hear what I said? It's going to be an economic situation. Well, with the global crisis economically that's unfolding, we see great evidence of it in the European Union, but around the world as well. We see all of this coming together. Everybody will have to receive, if they're alive in the tribulation period, some type of identification on their forehead or the back of their hand to be able to buy or sell, to be able to sustain life. And from Babylon, the Antichrist, that's that world dictator. He has 27 names in the Bible, uh, but the name most known by everybody, the Antichrist. He comes to power. Now, where does he come to power out of? He comes to power out of the revived Roman Empire. And I would have to say... Uh, that the European Union is at least the structure for that revived Roman Empire. And so we see all of these things coming together with the world leaders at a forum, which is a one-world government and economic and political system. I'm referring to the United Nations. The world leaders stand up and debate what's going to happen. And the debate really is focused on a nuclear-powered Iran, which is mentioned in the Scriptures, the prophetic word of God, and they're going to attack the Jewish state of Israel. And the Jews are in the land. They're in the land in unbelief, but when you look at the scenario in Ezekiel, they'll come back into the land, and then they come under attack by an alignment of nations from around the world. Dear friends, if you've listened to our conversation at all with these broadcast partners, you have to be aware of the fact that that world scene is set out there, a stage for the last drama to be played out, and all of these prophecies are going to be fulfilled. But they will not be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. That's the next event on God's calendar of activities, and that rapture could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 